Now we're going to read from God's word. We're in the book of Genesis uh, in the morning, the book of John in the evening. This morning, Genesis 18, I'm going to read verses 16 through 33. These three visitors from heaven have come to receive hospitality from Abraham. Then the men rose from there and looked towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me, And if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood still before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Then Abraham answered and said, indeed, now, I, who am but dust and ashes, have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than the fifty righteous. Would you destroy all the city for lack of five? So he said, if I find there forty-five, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, suppose there should be forty found there. And so he said, I will not do it for the sake of forty. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose thirty should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, indeed, now I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but once more. Suppose 10 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. And so the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is the word of the Lord. As part of the human condition, we come in contact with the existence of evil. We come in contact with the existence of injustice. In this life, since Adam fell at the very beginning, The human experience plays out in nations and in societies where evil and injustice hurt people. Real people are hurt. At times it could be class oppression, 
where you have the, the rulers and the rich seizing the property, the personal property of others, dictators seizing the land and the assets of some of their subjects. At other times, it could be something different. It could be just widespread sexual abuse, perversion. You can think of times in past where masters impregnated slave women, where there were man-boy relationships among the ancient Greeks, those kinds of things. In our day and time, evil and injustice continue. Nothing has changed at a societal level. You can, you can, you can think of the whole experience of, of driving while black, but also at a personal level, not just societal level, the, the father who skips out on his family and refuses to pay, withholds financial support. What, what do you do with the wrongness of it all? What do you do with the wrongness of evil and injustice? Now, if you're, if you're not a Christian, and, and maybe your perspective is that all of this, all of this is just matter and energy. Well, then evil and injustice, it's really, for you, it's just a very unfortunate roll of the dice for some people. But inside, inside, don't you, don't you know, don't you sense that evil, these evils and injustices, they ought to be addressed. Justice ought to have the final say with all of these things. And so for some people, they, they believe in karma. They believe that even if it's just informally, they believe in something like karma, something like what the Bible actually also says, that you reap what you sow. That when, when the Bible says this, it's true. Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity. But, but if your view is just, it's karma, it's just this kind of impersonal, balancing force, some kind of cosmic equation, well, our text today tells us that evil will be redressed. No one will get away with anything. But it's not karma, it's not an impersonal, cosmic balancing, it is personal. God is the judge of all the earth. And so we see three things the promise of this text, though, is, is that the judge of all the earth will do right. And so we see three things. Because the judge of all the earth will do right, we cry. We cry out. And then secondly, because the judge of all the earth will do right, we pray. And then thirdly, because the judge of all the earth shall do right, we work. So let's look at each of these. First of all, because the judge of all the earth will do right, we cry. We cry out. We cry for judgment upon evil, and we cry for judgment upon injustice. Verse 20, the Lord says, the outcry, the outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah, about Sodom and Gomorrah, it is great. Their sin is very grave. That's what God says. Now, in these ancient cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, there are was extreme evil. There were, were high crimes. They, they were playing out. It was not unusual. It was normal. What kinds of evil? Well, for one thing, rape. And it was not just rape, but it was rape that was public. And it was not just public rape, it was gang rape in public. And it was men raping men. It would be one thing if we were talking about just one situation, one case, one serial offender, or just, just a handful of criminals who were loose in ancient Sodom and Gomorrah. But what we hear and see here is that it was just an entire culture, an entire culture of cruelty. 
and of sexual abuse. Another way to put it, most people in those cities, most people in those towns had committed high crimes. It was a city of criminals. When God says in verse 20, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, God is saying, I know that evil is happening there. I know that evil is occurring in those streets. I notice when those evils occur. God notices. God sees evil and suffering. Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. And so you've, you've seen surveillance cameras where, where you go around in, in the city, uh, Virginia Beach, Norfolk, over, over sidewalks downtown, on the boardwalk at Virginia Beach, and there's some controversy with all these surveillance cameras. Should the authorities be able to watch us and to record us always? Should they have access on demand to your phone location data? Now, you might be worried about your personal privacy, but you do need to understand this. You have zero privacy before God. God sees all the peoples of the earth. God keeps, the Lord keeps watch over the evil and the good. And so when a man fornicates, God sees. And, and when a woman curses, God hears. We have no secrets from God. And what this text tells us is this. To, to him, evil is, evil is like a dirty diaper in the room. If you were here after church last Sunday evening, we, at some point we were, all, we were enjoying company with one another. We were visiting with each other. We were enjoying the barbecue that Charles Parker provided for us. And then I was talking with someone, and then suddenly as I was talking, I smelled something. The unmistakable smell of a dirty diaper. You cannot ignore it. It is unmistakable. To the Lord, evil deeds, the evil deeds on the earth are like dirty diapers in the room. God always notices it. He always notices it. And so in our text, the Lord hears the cry, the outcry of the great evil that's rising up from the earth, and he's going to do something about it. He comes to address it. You remember, it's always been this way. It was this way from the very beginning. Think about the first homicide in humanity, Cain killing Abel. It Like that blood, of Abel, who was murdered by his brother Cain, the blood spoke to God. The blood cried out to God, do something about this. Don't you see? Don't let him get away with this. The blood spoke to God and God confronted Cain. Now, are you, are you someone who is troubled by the bad news, by the bad news, wars, conflicts in Ukraine, in the Middle East? Are you someone troubled by the bad news about corruption, when corruption is discovered in government, or, or when you see and hear and experience inequities in society, you need to know this. God sees it. God sees it because sin speaks to him and God is listening. And we're not just talking about public harm, societal things. We're talking about private harm also. Someone has harmed you. Someone has wronged you. Someone cruel in your life, cruel to you. Someone pressing hard on you and someone getting away with doing that. God hears the cry of the harmed. God hears the harmed. Psalm 9, verse 11, speaking of the Lord, it says, he does not forget the cry of the humble. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Consider my trouble from those who hate me. God hears the cry of the harmed. God hears your cries to him. 
Now, not only does God hear us cry out, the text also tells us that God hears and he moves against it. So he's not just a, a watcher. He's, just not a, he's not only attentive, knowledgeable, but God will move against evil and suffering in the world. So verse 21 in our chapter, the Lord says, I will go down now and see whether they have done these evils. Verse 23, Abraham speaking to the Lord, you, God, have come to destroy the wicked city. The Lord and these two angels with him, they have come to destroy two exceedingly wicked places, Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, just step back and consider the implications of what's happening here. These are cities of the world. This is not Israel. Israel has not even been founded yet as a nation. And what we're seeing here is that God is an international judge of all the earth. Jeremiah 32 says to the Lord, you show loving kindness to thousands and you repay the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, you are great in counsel and mighty in work, for your eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. And so it it says that his eyes see, his eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men to give everyone according to his ways. His hand repays the iniquity, it says. And so the Lord here judged Sodom and Gomorrah, just as the same way that the Lord would judge Egypt and Nineveh, and in the same way that the Lord is going to judge Tulsa and Chicago and Tidewater. He will judge the 757. God moves against evil and suffering in the world. And if you understand that, then two things can happen. If you, if you really understand that and you believe it and you know it's going to happen, A, it will keep you from despair, and B, it will keep you from excessive anger. It keeps you from, from despair. Because when you know that God sees the proud and that God will, at the appointed time, render punishment to the proud, that gives you comfort. Your suffering is not ignored. The suffering is not senseless. God will bring justice. And if you understand that, it also keeps you from excessive anger and excessive outrage. They may have spread lies about you. They may have said things about you that were infuriating And now you want to blow them up. But because you know that the judge of earth will see and render judgment, you know that Psalm 96 is true. The Lord, for he's coming, he is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. And so you don't have to extract vengeance because vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He is coming. There is a judge, so you don't have to be the judge and that makes it easier to, to forgive. That makes it easier to forgive the person or the people who have harmed you. It makes it easier to have a heart of compassion for the person or for the people who have harmed you. Knowing that God will judge can keep you from letting bitterness take root in your heart. And so they took your money. They took your money and they, and they won't give it back. God knows. No one will get away with anything. Leave it with God. Leave it with him. So because the judge of all the earth shall do right, we cry out. We cry out to him. But second, because the judge of earth shall do right, we pray. 
because the judge of all the earth shall do right, we pray. Verses 23 through 33, it's this extended prayer from Abraham. And between Abraham and the Lord, more precisely, this is, this is an extended session of, of intercession and of negotiation between Abraham and the Lord. And so you've got, you've got the Lord and his two angels. They, they've come in judgment to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham stands in the middle. Abraham stands in the middle and he prays for God to, to hold back, to restrain his judgment against the wicked. Look at how Abraham literally stands between the Lord and Sodom. Verse 22, the, then the men, the two angels, turned away from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood still before the Lord. And there's this, this picture of intercessory prayer. This is what intercession can look like. You stand in the middle between God and the other people who are ripe for his judgment. And you pray, you pray in the middle for these people. You plead with God for these people. One illustration of this is, is uh, I think, of times when uh, I, acting as a dad with little kids, I'd hear of something. I'd hear maybe squabbling. I'd hear someone, some kid say something in the other room, and I thought, there they go again. It's time for the hammer to drop. And, and sometimes I would, um, I would be with my wife and I'd say, I'm going to take care of this. And, and sometimes my wife would intercede. She would say, now, now wait a minute. Do you also realize there's this, this, and this? There, there's, there's more going on than just you need to bring correction. And it would slow me down. Her calm advising me helped me realize I need to slow down. I need to restrain judgment. In this situation, the Lord has revealed that the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah have reached the heavens and now time for judgment is here. But Abraham wants God to restrain his judgment. He he wants God to hold back from bringing it today. Why? Why? Why does Abraham, does, does Abraham not care? Does Abraham not think these things are wicked? Well, it's because a few righteous people may remain. And if God's going to destroy those two cities, will God also destroy the few remaining righteous people who are living in those cities? that's, That's Abraham's concern. That's why Abraham wants God to restrain his judgment. That's what he says in verse 23 to the Lord. Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? And we know from reading the context, Abraham Abraham has family in Sodom. Lot, his nephew, and Lot has a wife. And they have two daughters who are married. So six relatives of Abraham live in Sodom. Later in in 2 Peter, we hear that this, this nephew, Lot, he's a righteous man. He's a righteous man living among a morally unclean people. And so the rest of the passage is Abraham asking, Lord, would you also destroy righteous people? with the wicked city. Verse 24, he, that, he starts down this, this, this negotiation with the Lord. So, verse 24, suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for 50 righteous that were in it? And now we don't know what the population of Sodom was. It could have been 100 people. It could have been 1,000 people. It could have been 5,000 people. We don't know. But Abraham says, yes, Sodom is. Sodom is exceedingly wicked. Yes, the just judge must move against it. You are the just judge, God. But you would not destroy it if 50 righteous people still remained. 
Would you? Then in verse 25, you, you hear this, the pulse of what a prayer is like, the pulse of a prayer attempting to persuade God. Abraham prays, far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous should be as the wicked. He says, far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. Now note that. Abraham says to the Lord, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Here is how, here's how to pray. Here's how to wrestle with God. Use him against himself. Tell God the truth about God. Abraham intercedes by telling God the truth about God. God will not slay the righteous with the wicked. God is the judge of all the earth who does right, says Abraham. Do you pray that way? Is that how you wrestle with the Lord? Do you tell God the truth that you know about God when you pray? Do you tell God the truth that he's told you about himself when you pray? Do you wrestle with God in prayer? Do you wrestle over your loved one, your loved one who may be making terrible life choices, and you're praying? Do you pray that way? Lord, you're the shepherd. I'm going to use you against yourself, as it were. You're the shepherd who seeks the wandering sheep. Don't let them keep tumbling off these cliffs and falling down into these crevices. You're the shepherd who seeks the wandering sheep. Find him. Find her. Bring him back. Call her back. Rescue that person. Or, or maybe you're, you're interceding for someone who's not well. Maybe they're not well physically. Maybe they're not well emotionally. Do you use God against himself as you wrestle with him? Lord, you're the one, you're the one who is the great physician. You're the only one who is capable of fully healing body and soul. Would you give relief to my sick friend? Would you raise back up this suffering saint? And, and so for the rest of the passage, Abraham is, is interceding this way. Abraham prays for God to restrain his judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah because God is judge who does right. He will do right. And so verse 26, the Lord says, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, I will spare the city for the sake of the righteous. And so Abraham keeps wrestling. Prayer is not a one-time event. Prayer is a process. We, we, we need to pray continually. How about, so then he says, how about 45 righteous ones? Would you restrain destruction of Sodom for 45 righteous people in the city? The Lord says, yes, for 45. Abraham says, well, what about 40? Yes. What about 30? Yes. How about 20? Yes. I will not do it if I find 20. And then Abraham says, how about 10? Would you refrain from destroying Sodom for the sake of 10 righteous people? And the Lord says, I will not destroy it if I find 10. Now, two questions. Do you pray this way? Do you pray for God to move against the unrighteous? Do you pray that God would bring an end to unrighteousness? Bring down the wicked, Lord. Do you pray that way? But then secondly, do you pray for the Lord to delay the destruction of the unrighteous? Do you pray that way also? This is subtle, but it's significant. Because what you see here is that a righteous remnant, even however small it is, a righteous remnant restrains the destruction of the wicked city. For the sake of a few righteous people, even if they're only a few, the Lord may allow the wicked to remain a little bit longer. 
For 10 righteous people, the Lord would permit wicked Sodom and wicked Gomorrah to remain. And perhaps that's why the Lord allows the wicked to prosper in our day. Why, why does an abusive parent remain undetected for so long? Why do adulterous pastors remain in the pulpit, undiscovered for years? Why is a country guilty of the blood of millions and millions of unborn infants? Why is that kind of country not swept away? This text suggests that for the sake of the righteous few, the judge will restrain his judgment. For the sake of the righteous children in the home, maybe that's why the Lord won't remove a toxic family system and destroy it. Maybe for the well-being of a righteous remnant, God will delay in tearing down a corrupt country. And so if the Lord finds only 10, 10 righteous people living in Sodom, the city will continue. The righteous will not be destroyed with the wicked. Now, are you in a hard situation? Are you in a hard marriage? Are you in a hard job? And you wonder why God does not move and bring an end to it. Well, perhaps for the sake of the righteous, though they be few, he restrains his judgment for a time. But it's hard to watch. It's hard to watch from the outside. If you have some involvement with it, it's hard to live through it. When you see mockers getting away with terrible things, saying terrible things, they're too slippery to be caught, too cagey and manipulative to be tripped up. And, and if you are trapped in a toxic home, a toxic workplace, a toxic relationship, it is hard. It is hard. Why does the Lord not act now? And, and so there's this tension and, and there's this pain that continues. Where do we find resolution to that? We find that tension and that pain finding resolution, it's in the gospel. Abraham tells God not to destroy the righteous with the wicked. But in the gospel, the righteous is destroyed so that the wicked are spared. Jesus is the righteous person who is destroyed so that the wicked would not perish. All our sins deserve destruction that would be just. But instead, Jesus is destroyed from the land of the living in the place of the wicked. And so we who believe, we remain in the land. And in the gospel, Jesus is the one righteous person in the entire city whose presence spares the life of the wicked. Because you see, none of us, none of us are righteous. We're not here in church pointing our fingers at everyone else saying, see all you unrighteous ones, you should just be grateful that we still live here in this zip code, otherwise you'd be gone. None of us is righteous. None of us is righteous. The land doesn't contain 50, not 10, not even one righteous person. Psalm 143, speaking to the Lord, in your faithfulness answer me and in your righteousness. Do not enter into judgment with your servant for in your sight no one living is righteous. All of our cities, all of our lives, no one has sufficient performance to be spared. But Jesus is the one righteous one who gives you his righteousness. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. God finds you pleasing. 
just as God finds Jesus pleasing, not because of what you've done, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And so this is the last thing. Because the judge of all the earth will do right, we cry out. Because the judge of all the earth will do right, we pray. And because the judge of all the earth has made us right, we work. And if you really get this, if you really understand this, it doesn't turn you into a passive, do-nothing person. It doesn't create people who are just self-indulgent and self-pleasing. Verse 18 says, Abraham, Abraham, you and, and my new nation that I'm making from you, you and your descendants, you've got work in this world. I have work for you to do in this world. He says in verse 18, all nations of the earth shall be blessed through you. I have made you to be a blessing to the nations of the world, he says. But how? How? How do believers, how do Christians for all of the ages bless the nations of the world? We work. That's what it says here. We work good for the world. Look at verse 19. He tells him, in order that you may instruct your children after you, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice. To do righteousness and justice. That is how you will be a blessing to the nations of the world. The Lord is saying, the nations of the world lack justice. The nations of the world lack righteousness. And you, church, bless the nations by bringing justice and bringing righteousness to this wicked world. And, and he says, and, and train your children to bring good into the world. And train your children to do righteousness and justice in this world. And, and we see that worked out in the history of the Christian church. Christians across all the ages were known for doing righteousness and justice in their times and in their places. It was Christians who worked for the abolition of slavery here and abroad. It was Christians who established hospitals and orphanages in many places. It, it is Christians who speak on behalf of the unborn who cannot speak against abortion. And it was a black Christian minister who moved the ball forward for the civil rights of black people in America. And so today for us, when you study the terms righteousness and justice in the Bible, it speaks to morality. It speaks to conformity to God's commands. And, and, and this is what you need to see if you took, were to do a, a careful study of righteousness and justice as defined by scripture. The righteousness and justice in the Bible frequently, frequently centers on the treatment of the weak, on the widow and the orphan, on the immigrant, the stranger, and the oppressed. It's all together, and it's always often there. Jeremiah 22.3, thus says the Lord, execute judgment and righteousness, and deliver the plundered out of the hand of the oppressor. Do no wrong and do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless, or the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. Places like Psalm 146, verse 7, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord gives freedom to the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the strangers. He relieves the fatherless and widow but the way of the wicked he turns upside down. Now all this, 
it can just it can, it can become horribly like idealistic and abstract. Let, let me try to bring it down, bring land the balloon. Let me try to give something tangible as an example, just one example of how how we and our children could perhaps do righteousness and do justice. Uh, maybe just one example of how we could bless the nation by doing righteousness and justice. In this city, there are people who are still living, living people, there are people who are still living who lived before the civil rights movement. Okay, One of the people who was doing sidewalk uh, evangelism met someone, I think she was like 80, but she lived before the civil rights movement. There are black people in America who lived through legalized discrimination and segregation, and they were told, you can't live in this part of town. You can't study in these schools. You can't marry these sons and daughters. Now, everybody knows that that was wrong. And most people understand that it wronged real black people and that it wronged their children who now live and work among us today. The Bible teaches us that Part of justice is restitution. Restitution means you return things that were wrongfully taken, giving back what was taken away. Leviticus 6, it shall be, because he has sinned and is guilty, that he shall restore what he has stolen or the thing which he has extorted. He shall restore its full value, add one-fifth more to it, and give it to whomever it belongs. Now, just try to hang with me. You look at what was taken from black people. Education, vocation and wages, social access. How in the world could you return any of that? How could you return any of that? How could you return lost educational opportunities to those people and to their children who have had to make their best with what little was given to them? How could you do that? I don't know. I don't know. But what if, what if church in this little place tried to restore at least just a little bit of what was taken? What about this, this little thing that we host here, this little weekly tutoring help that we give on Thursday afternoons where we try to offer reading, tutoring, a little meal, and the word of God, where we try to love these kids and these parents or their grandparents who are just trying to keep it moving forward when they had to start the race 40 yards back from the starting line. And what if we, church, trained our children and those after us to keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice in our place, in our time, and so to bless the nations of the earth. I think we can. I think you're doing it. May God help us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Christ, the one righteous one, when all that we had was unrighteousness. We thank you, Lord, for not only erasing our record and giving us his righteous record, but we thank you that we have good to work in this world. Our lives now have purpose. We pray, Lord, that you'd be glorified among us. Show us, Lord, how wherever we are, in the little places or the high places, whatever influence we do or don't have, that we would do what we can do to walk in the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice and be glorified in it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.